Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture, I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are in the last chapter of the Book of Mormon. We are in Moroni 10. Can you believe it, Bryce? There's always kind of a sadness when you come to the end of the Book of Mormon. There's a sense of accomplishment. We made it through the Book of Mormon. We talked through every chapter. But I know if you've... If you've made it through the Book of Mormon this Come Follow Me year, you get to the last chapter, and there's a happiness and a sadness when you get to the last, because you're remembering all the great things that we've talked about, but there's kind of a sense of, I'm really sad to come to the end. So I always feel that when I get to Moroni chapter 10. How is this relevant to us? So it's kind of funny when, you, when you're a member of the church, especially a lifelong member of the church, and you've known the Book of Mormon is true your whole life, you have a testament of the Book of Mormon, we kind of come to Moroni 10 and say, oh, that's for people who are learning whether or not the book is true. And mo- members of the church kind of brush off this promise as if it's for non-members or those who have not yet gained a testimony of the book. And so... To all the non-members listening to this podcast, I would invite you to come to know whether or not the book is true, like Moroni invites. But I'm guessing most of you that are listening are members of the church and have a testimony that the book is true. So I would invite you to reread this promise, especially if you've, if you've never really seen it this way. Verse 3, Moroni 10, verse 3, I would exhort you that when you shall read these things, not necessarily for the first time, he's not just simply saying, hey, when you read it for the first time, he's saying, hey, this year and come follow me, that you've read these things. If it be wisdom in God that you should read them. Step number one, that you remember how merciful the Lord hath been unto the children of men from the creation of Adam, even down until the time that ye shall receive these things, and ponder it in your heart. The first thing you need to do when you read the Book of Mormon is understand this major truth, that if God remembered them, if God did wonderful things in their life, if Heavenly Father was aware of their concerns and protected them, if when they faced formidable foes, if he was there in their life, then you need to remember that he's going to be there in yours. He doesn't love you any less than he loved anyone in the Book of Mormon. And if he did great things in their life, you have to believe that he will do great things in your life. In the Old Testament, when they cross the Red Sea, when they go across the Red Sea, They grab 12 stones, and they build a monument. And the whole purpose of that monument is to remind them, their children, and their children's children, when they needed God, He was there. And the whole point of the monument is to remind everyone that when you need God, He will be there like He was there for your ancestors. If He helped our ancestors cross the Red Sea into safety, out of Egypt, then he will do the same thing for you. He doesn't love you any less than he loved the children of Israel that came out of Egypt. He doesn't love you any less than he loved the stripling warriors who were preserved in their war. Therefore, when you read the Book of Mormon, you need to remember the good things that he's done. You have to remember that God has been there when people needed him. He will be there when I need him. When you are gathering sticks to prepare your final meal, not knowing where the next one will come from and doubting that it even will, when you are gathering sticks to prepare your final meal, you need to trust that a prophet will come into your life that will extend the cornmeal, extend the oil, and that you can eat many days. When you face a foe like the stripling warriors faced, which we do with Satan and his angels, you need to know that he will be there 
like he was with the stripling warriors. You need to remember, now that you've read this Book of Mormon, you need to understand that no one in the Book of Mormon is loved any more than you are, and that if he was there for them, he will be there for you. And I think verse 4 is that invitation. So many people read verse 4 as, well, if you don't have a testimony of the Book of Mormon, pray for one, and Heavenly Father will tell you that the book is true. And that certainly applies. But again, I would invite you to read it again. He says, when ye shall receive these things, I would exhort you that you ask the Father. Now, again, I'm going to point out these things, not just the Book of Mormon in general, but the messages of the Book of Mormon. When you shall read the messages of the Book of Mormon, faith, hope, charity, I would exhort you that you ask the Father in the name of Christ if they're not true in your life as well. In other words, once you read what God did, what the Savior did in the Book of Mormon, then you need to come and gain a testimony that that same God loves you and he will do miracles in your life. You need to have hope. You need to ask the Father if he is going to be there in your life and if he loves you as much as he loved anyone else in the Book of Mormon. Yes, we need to pray and ask if the book in general is true. I testify that it is. I have read this book. I don't even know how many times. I love it with all my soul. I know it is true. But beyond that, I know that the messages of the Book of Mormon are true in my life. If you'll go all the way back to the title page of the Book of Mormon, Moroni, who's writing this last chapter, writes kind of the summary of what the book is about on that very title page. Two paragraphs. He reminds us that the purpose of the Book of Mormon in the second paragraph is to show unto the remnant of the house of Israel what great things the Lord hath done. See how he, he wrote that in, in chapter 10? The purpose of this book is to show you that God did wonderful things in the lives of other people. Therefore, he will do wonderful things in your life. Secondly, he will help you know the covenants that you need to make so that you're not cast off forever. And then this book's purpose is to convince Jew and Gentile not only that Jesus is the Christ, but what Jesus does. Notice that last sentence. This book was written to the convincing of the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal Father, manifesting himself unto all nations. And not only nations, but if you remember one specific story in this book, if you go to Mosiah chapter 27, where a young man who was rebellious against God and his purposes was snatched in verse 30, Alma stands up, Alma the Younger stands up and says, I rejected my Redeemer and denied that which had been spoken of by our fathers, and now that they may foresee that he will come, and that he remembereth every creature of his creating. Now Alma testifies what was written on the title page of the Book of Mormon, he now makes it personal. Not only will Christ manifest himself unto every nation, Alma testifies, and he can do it powerfully, that Christ will make himself manifest unto all. And that includes you. You not only need to know the book is true, but you need to know that God will speak to you in your life, that he will protect you, that the promises he's made in this book, that very first promise in 1 Nephi chapter 1, that the righteous will be delivered through the tender mercies of the Lord, that that promise applies to you. That's, I think, the invitation that Moroni is making to lifelong members of the church who know the book is true. He is inviting you to come to know that the promises of this book apply in your life, that it is true that Jesus came to save sinners, including you that you can reach out and connect with him. 
if Alma and Ammon, if King Lamoni, if Zeezrom, if Amulek, if they don't teach that one lesson, that God will remember everyone who cries out, even sinners, even the very vilest of sinners, that he will remember those who cry out for mercy. That's the message that you need to have a testimony of. And I testify that you are remembered and that he will manifest himself to you and that every promise in the Book of Mormon, promises of protection, promises of deliverance, promises of tender mercies, promises of peace, will be yours. I testify that. I know it's true as I know this book is true. And how many times have we been invited, hey, write it down. Write down what what happened in your life. Maybe as we're reading the Book of Mormon at this time, we can think about those questions and say, you know, when has the Lord been with me? Why does it say it the way it says it in chapter 10? Why does it say, verse 4, when you shall receive these things, I would exhort you that you would ask God, the eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. And if you shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you. Clearly, Moroni knows it's true. Clearly, Moroni says, I've seen Jesus. He knows it's true. It's just the way that they many times ask questions. This is called, a, it's a Hebrew construction. It's called a negative question. It's essentially if you said to somebody, and you're driving to church on Sunday, and, and your kid says, hey, mom, why are we going to church? And you say, well, is it not Sunday? It's just a negative question. And there's a bunch of these in the Book of Mormon, and there's a bunch of these in the Bible. And so we'll list a lot of these in the show notes. I'm just going to read one just for fun. So if you remember the story of the chief judge being killed, go to Helaman 9, look at verse 32. So this is Nephi, and he's talking to them. And in verse 31, he says, you know, you're going to examine the brother, and you're going to find the blood upon the skirts of his cloak. And then when you see this, you will say, from whence cometh this blood? Do we not know that it is the blood of your brother? That's a negative question. Of course, the answer is, well, yeah, it's his blood. So that question sometimes gets asked. Are we supposed to ask that it's not true? And what Moroni is saying is, no, of course it's true, obviously, but... What you need to do is ask that it is true. Over and over again, he exhorts us, remember, remember, and I love how Bryce talked about that, the importance of remembering that he's in our life. I think if we just read the Book of Mormon and then we say, okay, it's true, and then we don't talk about me here now, I think we miss a big thing, don't we? Yeah. Then he gets into gifts. Um, he talks about gifts being an important part of the kingdom. And he says in verse 8, I would exhort you that you deny not the gifts of God, for there are many, and they come from the same God, and there are different ways that these gifts are administered. But it's the same God who worketh in all in all, and they are given by the manifestations of the Spirit of God unto men to profit them. And then he goes to a list of them, a bunch of gifts. To one it is given by the Spirit of God that he may teach, and to another, that he may teach the word of knowledge by the same spirit. And to another, faith. And to another, the gifts of healing. And there's a couple other places in the scriptures where the gifts are spoken of. They're spoken of in the Doctrine and Covenants, and they're spoken of in 1 Corinthians. I really like this reference where the Lord says this in the Doctrine and Covenants, where he says that the gifts that are given are given to the church. Look what it says. Doctrine and Covenants 46.10. Again, verily I should say unto you that you should always remember and always retain in your minds what those gifts are, that they're given to the church. For all have not every gift given unto them, but there are many gifts, and to every man is given a gift by the Spirit of God. And the first gift listed, and I think maybe this might be why Moroni puts it in there, I don't know, Verse 13, to some it is given by the Holy Ghost to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then the very next gift, verse 14, to others it is given to believe on their words. So sometimes it's just a gift to have this pure belief, and other times it's a gift to have the Spirit and to know. And I've heard the brethren talk about this before where they say we shouldn't compare our spiritual experiences 
Like just because I haven't had the same experience someone else has had doesn't mean that God loves me less. It's just we're all created differently. And I think, Bryce, you know this as a father, right? Your kids are not all the same. Right. And they have different gifts. And I love where Paul says we shouldn't feel bad about ourselves or we shouldn't be jealous of somebody else because of their gift because we're all the body of Christ. Now he says, if the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the hand head to the feet, I have no need of thee. Then I love this verse right in the middle of those. Now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. Meaning you have the gift that God wants you to have. And I think we really need to talk more about this in the church. If you want to do a little research, find 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, Doctrine and Covenants 46, and Moroni 10. That makes it significant that it talks about these gifts of the Spirit in three major locations in the Scriptures, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Book of Mormon, and the New Testament. And I love what Mike just said. I, I don't know that we talk enough about this. Back in section 46, every man is given a gift. You have a gift. Now, Paul and Moroni and the Lord in these areas list about 10 or 12 of them, but they also say there are many gifts. And then Moroni will add there's a diversity of gifts. For example, not only are there many gifts, but each gift can be manifested in different ways. For example, take the gift of tongues. One manifestation of the gift of tongues is a missionary that very quickly learns a foreign language in order to speak it. That's one manifestation. Another manifestation would be, you know, Brigham Young or uh, Balaam in the Old Testament who can just suddenly speak in a, a, a language that they don't even know. But how about this? How about a third manifestation of the gift of tongues is what I would say Neil A. Maxwell had in the ability to speak your own language very eloquently. Each one of those is a gift. There are many gifts, and you have one. Every single one of you have a gift of the Spirit. I like that Paul says we should covet the greatest gift, and Zealously. that's available to everybody, right? Yeah. At the very end of 1 Corinthians 12, he's like, by the way... There is one gift that's yeah. more important. So in, spite, in, in addition to the one that you've been given, you need to seek zealously the greatest of all gifts, which he says is charity. Yeah, and it's available to everybody. So I guess, yeah, I'm with you. Just read section four. I think since it's such a short text, you know, Moroni 10 is really small, I, I would like to invite you to read, like Bryce said, 1 Corinthians 12, Doctrine and Covenants 46. I'm going to throw another one at you that we're going to get into later, and that's going to be, you got to crack open Isaiah, because Moroni's referencing Isaiah. you got to crack open chapter 52. We'll get to that. But yeah, this one here, sometimes, now we're all different, but I think sometimes we compare ourselves, and we just feel so bad. If you know, We see somebody with a gift, and then we're like, oh. But I really think what Paul's saying is, Hey, there's many members, but one body. That's verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 12. And then in verse 29, he says, is everybody an apostle? Is everybody a prophet? And the answer is no. But the message is, God is mindful of you. And, and I'm with you, Bryce. We all have one. And sometimes we just don't even realize it. Yeah. And so a great question is, what is your gift? Um, my wife has an incredible gift of healing through listening. It's funny, I just watch so many people will just, strangers, will walk up to her and just chit-chat, and then pretty soon they're in a deep conversation, and then they're crying. And people will just come over to our house, you know, just to return some item or to deliver something, and they end up talking to my wife for hours, and they just feel better. She just has that effect. That's a gift. Patience is a gift. Calm is a gift. I am convinced President Hinckley had a gift that this church needed desperately, and that was the gift of optimism, the gift of humor, the gift of finding the positive in things. Those are gifts of the Spirit. Um, wisdom is a gift, and understanding is a gift, and, and being able to teach the Scriptures is a gift. But so, so also is kindness and the ability to listen 
the ability to uh, give advice. Um, there are so many gifts, and you need to figure out which one is yours. Um, Another resource you may want to look at is Marvin J. Ashton, many years ago, gave a tremendous talk on the gifts of the Spirit. And in that, he just said the following. Uh, His talk was called There Are Many Gifts, and it was the October Conference of 1987. And he said the following, from the Book of Mormon, particularly 3rd Nephi, chapters 11 through 26, when the Savior Jesus Christ showed himself to the people in the American continent, many gifts are referenced as to being very real and most useful, taken at random. Let me mention a few gifts that are not always evident or noteworthy, but are very important. Among these might be your gift, gifts not evident, but nevertheless real and valuable. Let me review some of these less conspicuous gifts. The gift of asking, the gift of listening, the gift of hearing and using a still small voice, the gift of being able to weep, the gift of avoiding contention, the gift of being agreeable, the gift of avoiding vain repetition, the gift of seeking that which is righteous, the gift of not passing judgment, the gift of looking to God for guidance, the gift of being a disciple, the gift of caring for others, the gift of being able to ponder, the gift of offering prayer, the gift of bearing a mighty testimony, the gift of receiving the Holy Ghost. Now, he's just going third Nephi 11 through 26 and identifying just in a few chapters of the Book of Mormon how many different gifts are referenced. And the point is, there are so many gifts of the Spirit. One of these is yours, at least one. You may have more, but at least one is yours. And it was given to the church. It wasn't given to you. Mike mentioned that in section 42. These gifts are given to the church, meaning your gift was given to bless the people around you. It wasn't given to make you feel better than them. It wasn't given for you to be prideful. Joseph Smith learned that when he lost 116 pages. It was given to bless other people's lives. Use the gift that Heavenly Father gave you to bless the people around you. This is a significant topic, and we really need to talk more about it. Yeah. If you look at the very last verse, the very last verse of the Book of Mormon says, And now I bid you all farewell. I soon go to the rest in the paradise of God until my spirit and body shall again reunite. And I am brought forth triumphant through the air to meet you before the pleasing bar of the great Jehovah and the eternal judge of both quick and dead. Amen. This question does come up, and the question is, is it the pleading bar of the great Jehovah or the pleasing bar of the great Jehovah? And so when Joseph Smith gave the Book of Mormon and when it was written down by Oliver Cowdery as scribe, occasionally words that Joseph would say wouldn't be written right. So for example, the word read in the printer's manuscript, it said weed. It's just that Oliver maybe was tired or he heard weed when Joseph said read. And we do this all the time. You mishear something. And so a great scholar who I really respect said that perhaps this was the pleading bar of the great Jehovah, and he cites a couple examples in uh, English history, and this scholar's name is Royal Skousen. John Welch wrote a great article where he rebuts that, and he says, probably not. And then he gets into the history of how an Israelite living anciently would have viewed this idea. And so his idea is that if it was pleading, Joseph would have had it changed after the 1830 edition from pleasing unto pleading. And the idea of the pleading bar of God, it's this idea of like, okay, you're in the dock. You are sitting there and you're being quizzed and you're in a trial and they're throwing these questions at you and there's a bunch of witnesses and the 12 apostles are sitting in the jury box and God's sitting in his throne looking at you like, what are you going to say, Mike? And you're like, uh, uh, where were you on October 12th? Were you doing this? And you're like, uh, I was guilty, right? You're basically at the pleading bar. You're begging for your life. And that's kind of a Christian way of viewing the judgment, isn't it, Bryce? Yeah. So the pleading bar is this idea of like, oh man, I am going to get wrecked, right? And then we get into this, well, what what is a pleasing bar? What what does that mean? And this is what John Welch writes, and I just found this to be brilliant. And like I said, I I respect both scholars. And 
So John Welch says, in fact, Jews anciently welcomed God's judgment and saw it as a moment of vindication for his people, not as a terrifying and foreboding event. Thus, as C.S. Lewis astutely observed in his classic Reflection on the Psalms, it's the Christians who tend to see the final judgment as a courtroom proceeding in which they position themselves as the accused in a criminal case with the Christian himself in the dock. But the Jews, they picture it as a civil case with himself as the plaintiff. The Christian, we're hoping for an acquittal or rather a pardon, but the Jew hopes for a resounding triumph with heavy damages. Thus, the idea of Jacob's pleasing bar, because Jacob talks about the pleasing bar of the great Jehovah as well, it's not problematic if you emphasize the Israelite background for Jacob's introduction of this phrase in Jacob chapter 6, verse 13. And in fact, Jacob speaks like an Israelite when he sees the judgment bar of God as a pleasing bar. But then he warns us in Jacob 6, 13, that the bar striketh the wicked with awful dread and fear. So for example, the pleading bar, I'm in the dock and I'm like, uh, uh, I'm toast. Now, how many times do we read that Jesus is my advocate, right? He's also my judge. So he's defending me and he's my judge. Like, how does this play out? So I'm okay with it being a pleading bar, but I'm grateful that in the text it says pleasing. And I do believe that that's the word that came from Joseph. And why this matters is because it's how we view judgment. I think what Moroni is saying is, if I lay hold on every good thing, and by the way, the greatest thing is Christ. So if I lay my hands on Christ and his hands touching mine, he's going to take me home and it's going to be a pleasing day. And along the way, we have all these checkups, right? We have all these checkups along the way. And yes, we have moments of harmatia, moments of sin, harmatia, miss the mark. I missed the mark today. And the Lord says, that's okay. Get up and let's do it again. In basketball, if you make half your shots, you're like an all-star. You're going to miss shots, but you just keep going and you just get up. And so I like that, but I also, I, I respect Dr. Scalzo, and I want you to know that I don't want anybody lighting me up in the comments like, Mike, what are you doing? So I'll post both in the show notes, but just know that how we read words, like one little word matters. And I think in that word, pleasing, I think Moroni is telling us a lot about what we can expect. I think pleasing is in harmony with how Enos saw it, because I love the last verse of Enos. Since we're speaking about the last verse of Moroni, here's the last verse of Enos, and here how he viewed Judgment Day. Enos says, I soon go to the place of my rest, which is with my Redeemer, for I know that in him I shall rest, and I rejoice in the day when my mortal shall put on immortality and shall stand before him. Then shall I see his face with pleasure." And he will say unto me, come unto me, ye blessed. There is a place prepared for you in the mansions of my father. Clearly, it was a pleasing bar to Enos, and it should be to us. So I think that's in harmony with how a lot of the Book of Mormon authors saw judgment. Good. But let's go back to uh, just a couple things in chapter 10 as you study them. Notice you're going to find a reference to faith, hope, and charity again, as if Moroni is waving the flag to say, please remember this message, faith, hope, and charity. I love verse 27 that I get to see Moroni someday. Nephi says the same thing. Um, One of the great moments of my life will be standing face to face with Nephi as he tells us I will in, in 2 Nephi 33, but I love this in verse 27, where Moroni says, I exhort you to remember these things, for the time speedily cometh that you shall know that I lie not, for you shall see me at the bar of God, and the Lord will say unto you, did I not declare my words unto you, which were written by this man? And I can't wait to say, yes, Lord, you did. And I loved them. And I read them all the time. I can't wait to hear God say to me, didn't I give you my words through the book that this man wrote? There have been times when I had to teach a class, Bryce, and I I remember 
I have to teach this section of scripture. And I think the person that wrote this is real. And can you imagine if I stood in front of that group of students and I didn't give it justice? I'm going to have to look them in the eye and be like, and they're going to be like, I had to put this on metal plates and you played you Hank, pa- man? What were you thinking? Like, you know, sometimes when you teach in church, maybe you've had this experience where you have a youth who comes maybe twice a year and they show up in your class and you're like, they may not come back again till Easter. I better not mess this up. In other words, we're all different, but sometimes I think it's easy to get lazy and think, oh, they're going to get this at home or, oh, they're going to talk about this in seminary or in Sunday school. But I think as teachers, we should really realize that verse 27 is real, like Moroni is a real person. Not to put too much pressure on teachers. I'm not, I don't want to be a travel agent for your guilt trip, but just know that, yeah, Moroni is a real person. So we got, we got to do it justice. Yep. You can say the same thing for Alma and Moroni and Mormon and Nephi. The Lord's going to say someday, didn't I give you a great sermon about seeds and planting seeds and growing seeds through this man's writing? Yes, Lord, you did. And did you teach and it? Did you, te- did you live it? <laughs> did you read it. it? Did you study it? Did it mean something to you? But let's jump to one of the crowning verses of chapter 10, and that is verse 32 Come unto Christ and be perfected in Him. It's this idea of partnering. Mike and I have talked a lot this year about grace for grace and dance, and it's a partnership with Jesus. One of the things that comes out of the Book of Mormon is that I partner with Him for my salvation. If I come unto Him, I can be perfected in Him. It's not go be perfect, and then he accepts you. It's come walk with me, and I with you, we will make you perfect. And what you need to do, verse 32, is you need to deny yourself of the ungodly things you're still holding on to. Can you let go of the telestial and terrestrial things that you so quickly grasp? That's the first thing you need to do in order to come into Christ, is let go of the telestial, terrestrial things that we're holding on to. Deny yourself of ungodliness. Deny yourself of lust. Deny yourself of pride. Let it go. It's not going to benefit you. Come walk with Christ. And he'll perfect you if you let go of the things. In the New Testament, we call this laying or picking up your cross or laying down your cross, however you want to see it. But it's come pick up the cross of Christ. And Jesus says to to pick up your cross means to deny yourself ungodliness. Our job is to let go of the worldly, telestial, terrestrial things that are keeping us away from Christ. It's to tear down the mountain that exists between me and the Savior. It's to build up the valley that I've created between me and the Savior. Come unto Christ by denying yourselves of ungodliness. If you do that, then love God. So step number two is to love God with all your might, mind, and strength. So let go of lesser things. Let go of telestial things and love God with all your might, mind, and strength. And if that happens... His grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient to make you perfect, that by His grace you may be perfect in Christ. And if by the grace of God you are perfect in Christ, you can in no wise wise deny the power of God. I think you you can read that two ways. You can say, if Christ helps you make you perfect, well, then you won't deny your testimony. You won't deny that God does good things. But I think the way I read it, I think the way it's intended to be read, is if God through His grace makes you perfect, in no way can the power of God be denied you, that you will have power in God. You will become holy without You will become powerful because you're walking with Him. His grace is sufficient to perfect you. You can't do it alone. Your job is two things. If you just read two things in Moroni 10.32, deny yourself of ungodliness. Now, that's what we need to work on every day. I need to let go of telestial and terrestrial. 
and then I need to focus on loving God. If I will let go of the lesser things, hatred, anger, pride, jealousy, lust, if I let those things go and love God, His grace is sufficient that I will someday, maybe eons from now, but someday, I will be perfect in Christ. And that's the invitation. I think that's how the Book of Mormon should end. It's an invitation to come unto Christ, partner with Him, make Him your partner, so that in His grace, you become perfect. So there's basically two ways He does this. Bryce just laid out verse 32 and 33, which is a personal invitation, right? But then verse 31 is the collective. This is God in the council speaking to us collectively as Israel, and he's I'm motioning with both my hands and I'm lifting them up, and he's saying, awake and arise from the dust. Now, arise from the dust can mean a lot of things. In the Jewish interpretation, this idea of, of uh, multiplicity, ar- arise from the things of the world, all the things you could be doing. This is Elder Oaks, good, better, best. Leave the multiple things that you could do and just lay hold on every good thing. So arise from the dust and put on your garments, O daughters of Zion. Strengthen thy stakes and enlarge thy borders forever. Thou mayest no more be confounded that the covenants of the eternal Father, which he has made unto thee, O house of Israel, the collective, may be fulfilled." Moroni is channeling Isaiah 52, so we have to go there. Now, we've done it before because Isaiah is kind of a big deal in the Book of Mormon. So if you've heard this before, maybe it will do it a little bit differently here, but here it is, Isaiah 52, 1. This is the great exchange, and what I mean by that is there's a throne, and sitting on the throne is the enemy of God, and so the enemy of God has to be ushered out. So if you remember this stuff that is in Nephi, or if you remember what John writes about in Revelation, there's always this duality, right? There's the... Always an imitation. There's the imitation. There's the true church, and then there's the false church, right? And so the false church, and this is kind of rough language, but it's the book of Revelation. I didn't write it. John calls her the whore of all the earth, and so does Nephi. Well, where is she talked about? Well, she's in 47. So before you read 52, you got to at least look at 47. So in Isaiah 47, Isaiah says, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground. There is no throne. So she's being exited off the throne into the ground. And then the rest of this is all slavery imagery. Take the millstones, grind the meal, uncover the locks, make bare the leg, uncover the thigh. In other words, Babylon is being exited from the throne. And notice it's down because the world is holding her up. The world is lofting her up and praising her and singing her praises, and so she will be brought down to the dust. And that will be the opposite image, because the world is pushing the true bride of Christ, the church, down into the dust, and she has to come out of the dust and take her throne. It's that dual image of going from the throne to the dust, one that's been placed on the throne because she is the queen of the world. But she will lie in the dust someday, and the one that was pushed into the wilderness, the woman that ran into the wilderness, is going to come out of the dust and ascend to the throne. I just love that dual image right there. So 47, that's why she's going down into the dust. Big collective stuff, right? So verse 5 she can't talk anymore. And this is Elder Oaks's reference on the voices. We live in a world where there's all these voices, and the Book of Mormon is one of these voices, and Babylon is loud. I remember Elder Packer, when he talked about this, he said, the first thing that we did when we were going to invade France in World War II, when we were going to come into Nor- Normandy, is we had to jam their communications so they, did, they didn't know what day we were coming over. And he says, that's the first thing an enemy does is they try to jam your transmission so you can't hear. And so verse five, we're going to sit her down. We're going to tell her to be silent. Why? So that Zion can take the throne. So go back to Isaiah 52. We're back to the collective. Verse two, shake thyself from the dust, arise and sit down. So now Zion is sitting on the throne. She's put on her beautiful garments. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith the Lord, ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. 
For thus saith the Lord, my people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Verse 6, therefore my people will know my name, and they shall know that in the day that I am he that doth speak, behold it is I. Remember everything Bryce just said about making it relevant for you. So he's speaking to the collective, but then he's speaking to you, and he says, you're going to know who I am, and you're going to know my name. Think about what that means, to take the name of God and to know the name of God. Verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye, when the Lord shall bring again Zion. This is referenced also in 3 Nephi. Seeing eye to eye is a specific thing referring to sacred spaces. And in case you missed it, we get it again in verse 10. The Lord's going to make bare his arm, and all the ends of the earth are going to see the salvation of God. And then verse 11, like Bryce read about Don't touch the unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, meaning Babylon, and be clean. When we do this collectively, verse 13, we are the servant. Israel is the servant, and they will be exalted. But there's a price, verse 14. When you serve Christ, one of the things that's pretty much a guarantee is that people are going to say bad things about you. Now, I can't read verse 14 and not see Jesus. His visage was so marred more than any other man. That's Jesus. But it's also every person who takes upon themselves the name of Christ. When you stand up for what's right, there's nowhere in this world now where you can stand up for what's right and people are like, okay, except for maybe church. But if you were to go in any of these social media settings and you were to stand up for what's right, there's always somebody coming at you. If you go on a mission, there's always someone coming at you. But the message is verse 13. So collectively, arise and stand up. We're going to be in sacred spaces, verse 8 and 10 and 7. Just think about what those verses mean. There's a price, but then we'll be gathered. Now, verse 15, I know it says sprinkled. Joseph changes it to gather. And so if you look at 15, collectively, the saints are going to be gathered. And the people that are powerful... They're not even going to know what to say. There's going to be a day when the resurrection happens. And some people that many thought were inconsequential will be great and it will cause people to pause. And so I love Isaiah 52. And I see this being packaged by Moroni. And I see all the carnage that he saw. And he saw in future, I think he did like Nephi did, where he says, my people are going to be scattered, smitten, and slain. But once again, we're back to the greatest story. They will rise from the dust. It's going to get fixed. It's going to be made better. They will rise from the dust. I love Lehi's take on clearly he's getting this from Isaiah. There's just no question to me he's getting this from Isaiah. But he says the same idea in 2 Nephi chapter 1, where he tells Laman and Lemuel to be men. And then he says, awake, my sons, put on the armor of righteousness Shake off the chains with which you are bound and come forth out of obscurity and arise from the dust. What reference is that? Second Nephi chapter 1. He says to be men in verse 21. I just read verse 23. And that's the invitation collectively. At the end of the Book of Mormon, we are being asked to shake off the chains that bind us. Shake off our bad habits. Shake off what has pulled us down into our own forms of slavery and bondage. Shake off the chains. Come out of obscurity and arise from the dust. We collectively are the woman that ran into the wilderness to hide during the apostasy. And we are coming forth clear as the moon, fair as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. So Moroni's plea at the very end is that we rise up from the dust, that we as Zion, we as Israel, rise up, shake off the chains, come out of obscurity, put on our beautiful garments, 
or in Lehi's term, put on the armor of righteousness. Be perfected in Christ. Team with him. Make him your partner. And his grace is enough. It's sufficient. No matter how low he had to go to partner with you, no matter how many sins you brought to him, his grace is sufficient to make you perfect. He can do it. And that is not just the message of the last chapter. That's not just the message of Moroni 10. That is the message of the whole Book of Mormon, that Christ's grace is sufficient, that with him in your life, you can be made perfect. I testify of that. I want to just thank everyone who listened this year. I want everyone to know how deeply and profoundly I love this book. Dostoevsky once said that if it could be proven that Christ were outside of the truth or that the truth were outside of Christ, he says he would still choose Christ rather than the truth, meaning the kind of man that Jesus was, was worthy of following whether or not he was the Messiah or not. The life that he lived, the kind of man he was, is worth emulating. I will follow him even if he's not the Messiah because of the kind of man he was. I now say that of the Book of Mormon. If some way someone could prove that the Book of Mormon was a fraud, which will never happen, but if you could prove that the Book of Mormon was a fraud and that Joseph Smith was the inventor of it, I will still spend my life studying this book because of the influence it's had on me and the people that I love and teach. Whoever wrote this book knows the human condition. He knows what's broken in humanity. He knows our frailties, our susceptibilities. He knows where we err and where we fall. And this book was written to fix those things. Whoever wrote the Book of Mormon is the most brilliant doctor or psychologist or psychiatrist I have ever studied because they know the human condition. And so even if this book were false, which I testify it is not, I would still spend my life studying it because that's the kind of book it is. It leads you to do good, to be good, to be better. Therefore, I testify with all my soul that it is not only true, but its message is true, that His grace is sufficient for you if you will come unto Him. Imagine in the 1940s when they go to Qumran and they find the Dead Sea Scrolls. Imagine there was no Book of Mormon, but it was in those caves. So the provenance, the same words, but the provenance has changed, meaning it wasn't from an angel to Joseph, but it was all of a sudden discovered and put in the Smithsonian. And they found these plates mm -hmm. and they translated them. And the words were the same words. Would not every Christian and their dog and their chicken raise their hands to heaven and thank God for the Book of Mormon? In other words, I think the reason why our critics don't like it has nothing to do with the words, but it has to do with what those words are implicating, what they mean. Okay, now I have to do something. The ramifications that comes because the words are true. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Like yep. if the provenance was shifted... This book would be from the rooftops. It would be in every Christian church. It would be read from every pulpit. And everybody would say, oh my gosh, the Bible's true. And I think about this, Bryce, because in 1830, there were some people that kind of denigrated the Bible a little bit. We know that Thomas Jefferson kind of cut some stuff out that he didn't like. The miracles of Jesus, he kind of went through his Bible and took those out. He liked the philosopher Jesus. I don't know that he necessarily didn't believe in the miracle of Jesus, but you could see him wrestling with this if you read some of his writings. But yet the bulk of the people believed it. And yet today, after Darwin and biblical criticism and, and this whole school coming from, especially from Germany and from Wellhausen, this idea of 
well, maybe the Bible isn't what, what the Bible purports itself to be. The Book of Mormon is more relevant now than ever. And so to me, this book, this is what it shows me, that there was a specific group of Israelites that were different than those 6th century Jews in Jerusalem, and there was this tension, and they were kicked out. Now, they're going to be visionaries in the Bible. There's going to be small branches of them that survive. John the Baptist is one of them. But this is a branch of Israel that still believed in visions and the heavens and that God was a man and that God spoke to them. And so to me, this shows this little teeny strain of Israelite religion that just carried on that light. And if you think about the big bulk of Christianity, about a third of the earth is Christian. As Latter-day Saints, we're this little teeny sliver, and we're just a little bit different to the point where our neighbors say, are you even Christian? And we say, well, of course we believe in Christ. Read the Book of Mormon. And so sometimes I just think, if the providence changed, if the Book of Mormon came out of some cave with the same words, all of my Christian friends would love it. And so my testimony is this. I have a spiritual witness that Jesus is the Christ. I've had answers to prayer. But the more I go down the rabbit hole of what is going on in the Old Testament, I'll read some stuff and be like, what is this? And then I think to myself, how many times does the Book of Mormon answer some of those riddles? It's like this key. But then it's also the opposite. The Bible helps to unlock the Book of Mormon. And they're kind of like two hands shaking, but then there's a third hand involved. And Bryce, to me, that's the temple. The Book of Mormon and the Bible hand in hand unlock the temple, and the temple unlocks the Bible in the Book of Mormon. And so I just want to part with that idea, that I look forward to the temples coming back. I guess the word on the street is they're opening a couple. That's the last I heard yesterday. But I look forward to that. And I, I do. I love the Book of Mormon. Bryce, for me, this has been a good year because I've really done a more in-depth study of it, and so it's been a blessing to me. I, I have people come and say, thank you for sharing what you share, and I say to them, no, thank you. Thank you for allowing us an opportunity yes. to do it. Thank, I feel like so blessed that I get to be part of this. So, And I want to also thank you, Bryce, because when, when we were pitching this idea, I was kind of scared. I'm like, you're going to think this is crazy, but you're like, no, giddy up, let's do it. So I think this has been a good year. I mean, 2020 has been a rough year, but it's been a good year. It's been a great Book of Mormon year. I I love Mike. I love being with him. He just he, he brings me insights into the scriptures that I love. I hope this has been beneficial for all of you. We do plan on continuing with the Doctrine and Covenants. Thanks. We'll see you in 2021. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.